Warning, this podcast is rated not safe for work for profanity, sexual innuendo, and general silliness. All right, here we are. It is it is part two. It is it is part two of vampires. And 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 with the ants. Patrick, why don't you tell people what the fuck they're doing here? Why don't, why don't you give the intro a why don't you go to Stabaroo? Well, so last week we learned all about Vlad the Impaler and all the fucked up shit he used to do. And uh, this week we're going to take a little bit more of a look at the the myth, the folklore, and uh, touch on uh, the literature and TV and movies and what word am I looking for? Pop culture and the science. There we go. The pop culture. And the science. And if some you, science. Where are? Because you, you know what podcast this is? What podcast? The Macabre Academy. What? Yeah. Yeah. We're here to teach you about all this fucked up shit that you didn't know you needed to know. Shit. All right. I'm down. Um, yeah. So we've, we've spent quite a bit of time on the, the real Dracula, right? The Vlad the Impaler. That was a fun ride. Uh, if, if this episode tickles your fancy and you want to know more about him, go back. Go back one episode if you're, if you're new here. If you're not new here, cool. Let's, let's dive into the things. And, and, uh, oh, my name, we really got to get an intro together, man. I'm, I'm, it's gone. Okay. So my name is Steffi, AKA nerdy, Witch. I am the headmistress here at the macabre Academy. Um, I also run house Barnum is under my credentials. Okay. And then we have our returning guest and new addition to the podcast, Patrick. That's me. Yeah. Patrick, why the fuck are you here? What, what are your, what are your credentials? Well, I'm a sucker that can't say no. That's that's part of it. Uh, no, actually, uh, so my wife and I are the owners of the recently opened uh, metaphysical shop in Bellevue, The Menagerie, uh, which uh, I've been told stands for a collection of unique objects and people. And that's kind of what we like to do there. So we have uh, all your metaphysical needs. We also have uh, tarot and oracle card readings. We have Reiki healing treatments. And we're going to be expanding there on all fronts so i luckily got to meet you through the shop and now i'm here yeah and so master of house crowley yes yes he's he's donned the goat the goat uh i feel like it should be like a a goat crown or something now i have horns we'll design something yeah we'll do the things um so what you can't learn at the shop you can learn here we got we got Tons of useless and fascinating information. So I believe that uh, just to just to reacquaint us with uh, the Dracula and the vampires, you had a nice little memory you forgot to oh, share. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, my father grew up in Czechoslovakia, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And the nice thing about that section of Europe is every country is about the size of. A dining room table. They're all pretty small. So you, they, they got to travel a lot and see, see a lot of different things. And there was one day when I was a little kid, uh, my grandmother came down to visit us and she brought a whole bunch of old uh, home videos. And, you know, it was the kind that was on the, the eight millimeter reels and it was the projector on the wall. And, and as they're, they're showing the scenery drive by in the car and there's mountains up in the background, and you just see a, a castle slowly passing by the background. My dad's like, oh, by the way, that's Dracula's castle. So that was my first 
kind of like hint into the world of, of Dracula and, and all the lore and legend as a little kid seeing the video that my my dad and, and grandparents took of, of Vlad's castle. That's pretty cool. I would I would give my left kidney yeah. to do that real. <laughs> Honestly, that's that's pretty fantastic. You would probably have to give both because I doubt it exists anymore. I mean, we both have profound knowledge of the occult. I'm sure we could manifest <laughs> this thing somehow. We'll summon something. Yeah. Somebody somehow this thing can can will itself into existence, I'm sure. We're we're gonna need a necromancer, your left titty, and uh, a, a jar full of graveyard dirt from Salem. I, this can be arranged. This could be I arranged. actually know of a necromancer who has a jar full of Salem with uh, graveyard dirt. So Yeah, we gotta talk to that guy. We gotta talk to that guy. So like for me, right, like uh my family is Roman Catholic which is, you know, I'm a bad school Catholic school girl. That's how you got this. Yep. yep. Um, but we grew up with Halloween being our favorite. And so I watched, you know, MGM's original Bela Lugosi as, as the Dracula. Classic. Like black. Yeah. Black and white. And then I found myself in college, you know, uh, I, I love to rant. Look, I'm paying 120 grand for my education. So this is the only time I get to like throw out <laughs> the fact that I even went to college. So we're going to throw it in here. So I, I went to the university of Pitt, Maine, and I studied religion in college and art history. And for one of my literature requirements, I took Romanian uh, literature, which was basically a veil because the class was called vampires, like vampire literature. So yeah, we did a whole deep dive study into Bram Bram Stoker's Stoker's. Yes. Stroker. There we are. You keep wanting to go back to Stroker. Yeah, we just need to stroke it, man. Stroke it. Maybe I need laid. Then we don't. I was gonna say. I think. I think your mind's somewhere else. Somewhere else. (laughs) But um, we watched the films. We discussed the books, and we did the things. Um, There's this great book uh, in search of Dracula. I put it up on my Instagram. I was reading that for some uh, information for the podcast, but I actually took a whole college course in this shit. So we're gonna. Dude, we're going to use that part of my my very expensive degree that this is how I'm using oh, it. Damn okay. time. Yeah, right? Higher like, oh, <laughs> course on vampires. We're just going to throw out into a, an hour and 20 minute episode on vampires. It's great. Here we are. So we're going to start with my absolute favorite. Do you know what my favorite part of every episode is? Etymology. Etymology. That thing about knowing where words come from. Yeah, etymology. That's my <laughs> thing. If I could go back to college and study more, it would be etymology. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. It's kind of like faggot, right? It's like, oh, you're such a faggot. Oh, don't say that word. Don't say that word. You can't say that. Okay. They turn it into slang. Okay. It's a bundle of fucking sticks. Do you know why I love the word cunt so much? Do you know why I love it? I know. I, I love it. It's Polish for the word slit. Okay, you're basically being called a glorified pussy. But if you back back up just a little bit, okay, all right, you could cut a cunt into a loaf of bread. Okay, it is a slit. Okay, it's it's a word, people. It's whatever power you give it. So how these words come to certain so oh, fascinating. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> so I use words knowing I use it. Okay, I know the cunt word. I use a lot. Okay, it's it's I'm Polish. That's my word. I'm taking it back. That's fair. I mean, but it's a great word to begin with. Oh, it's so abrupt and so sharp, but it's like, it's like violent, but it's sexual. 
and it's delightful <laughs> and offensive all at the same time. You cannot ask for a better word. No, no, you cannot. Yeah, well, we're talking about vampires, not cunt. Maybe I could do a whole episode on cunt. I need to figure this out. Sound Maiden will kill I, me. I think we'd have to change it to a, an XXX rating for that show. Yeah, sorry, Sound Maiden, I won't do that. Okay, not going to happen. Okay, so <laughs> etymology on vampires. We're going we're gonna to pretend it is 1732, and we get news reports about vampire epidemics, uh, Eastern Europe. And that those news reports is where the first appearance of this word comes, vampire, in English as we know it today. And we can thank the Ottomans again for this one, because uh, the Ottomans had reached their peak in the 16th century and had a rapid expansion over 32 provinces and a myriad of vassal states. After a victory in Greece and Crete in the Ottoman-Venetian War, okay, the military became um, under increasing strain from the inflammation, like too big, too far, too fast. Okay. The sucker's ready to pop. Basically. Horse fucking expensive is what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's costly endeavor. Um, so the Ottomans kind of retract from their aggressive military style and they go into a period of peacemaking missions. So they're they're coming off an Austro-Turkish war in 1716 that lasted until 1718. And they lost Serbia and Western Wachovia to Austria. Wachovia is where Vlad the Impaler is from, if you didn't listen to the other episode. Um, The invading European officials noted the local practice of exhuming bodies and, air quote, killing vampires. The Transylvania actually called it Stregoi, okay? Um, and uh, they would they would stake the corpses. Blah, blah, blah. And those reports, when the English called them vampires, not Stregoi like the vampire. The Stephanie, this is too early to be stumbling on your shit, okay? This means I'm not, I, I need a beverage is what this needs. Um, Transylvanians called Stregoi. The, the European guys watching all the shit happen go vampires, Boom, pops up in the thing. Um, it's actually uh, more of a Serbian term, right? Vampire. And it has parallel in all Slavic languages and eventually causes derivatives of an equivalent uh, vampire in German and the French uh, vampire. Now, I'm not saying this right, but it's spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E. I, I'm trying to remember my limited high school French, and that sounds about right. Um, yeah. But so it, it's really kind of hard to get that exact description of what the vampire was, because there's so many variations of the folkloric vampire, other than it's a form of an undead creature that subsists on extracting the vital essence, most often blood, from a living host. In general, they're weakened by sunlight and may have the ability to shapeshift. So basically, you got the Strigoi in Transylvania, right? So we know the vampire is not a word till 1732. Okay. But the idea of that basic folkloric description exists and it exists far back into ancient times. So we have to consider superstitions from the middle ages and prior of supernatural beings that consumed flesh and blood as being possible vampires. Okay. 
these activities were traditionally uh, attributed to demons, the spirits, witches, gods, and even the devil in ancient times. Okay, so if we take that basic description that uh, you were so kind to give us of what the folkloric vampires are, we have to consider the European origin legends because they're the most prominent um, for vampirism. So to find said vampire, you had to look at them while they were sleeping in their coffin. So basically you had to disinter any deceased person uh, you suspect of said vampirism. And you're looking for a certain set of characteristics to know if you're one of these creatures, okay? You got a fat corpse, okay? This fucker's puffy, okay? And there should be ruddied, purpled, or dark complexion because they just fed, okay? You have blood seeping out of the nose and the eyes. Uh, the left eye itself might just be hanging out open. Uh, that Just the one eye, not both eyes open, just the one eye. And, and of course, you know, right, right eye, you're perfectly fine. Normal dead body. That perfectly normal. And then the hair, teeth, and nails would have continued to grow post post perceived uh, mortem. Things were not an indicator yet, so we're just we're just looking for for you know ganglier teeth basically. And the telltale sign you were right if the person in the coffin was the vampire that was plugging you was to pierce it with a wooden stake through its heart, and it would produce a scream. From being killed uh, by, yeah, said stake. So these ideas were formed from the pre-industrial societies attempting to explain nature. Uh, to them, it was inexplicable. The process of death and decomposition, they assumed what of what the dead should look like without knowing the rates of, of decomposition and how it can affect and, and all the different factors like temperature, moisture, soil composition, all that kind of good stuff. So there's a laundry list of stages of decomposition. The first one is freshly dead. So you naturally, our bodies contain a host of bacteria called protozoans and nematodes that no longer under control at the time of death. They're gonna they're gonna start running rampant. There's there's nothing in the body to regulate them now. Party. Woo! And that that brings us to stage two, which is initial decay, which is from the moment of death up until about three days after, those bacteria that are partying begin to break down the intestines itself and spread uh, to the other organs. Organ now back up step. They spread to the other organs along with the digestive enzymes. This is also when flies become attracted to the body and begin to lay eggs. So that can happen very early on. And they head for every orifice, like genitals were listed, not just like ears, nose. Any opening in the body is is not sacred. There, there could be flags in there. That's just what's going to happen. That's just rude. Yeah, nothing sacred. Um, they often hatch within the first twenty four hours too. The life cycle, the life, the life cycle of a fly from egg to maggot to fly can take two to three weeks in its totality. Okay. Um, and it can take considerably longer at lower temperatures. What's interesting about this, and I'm just going to mention it. I, did you see the Netflix um, BBC Dracula 
on the the thing. The the new one. Yeah. Like that little mini series. Yeah. 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 Well, if you notice that they like there be hordes of flies coming, and they'll be like, "Vampire's coming. He's coming. He's coming." Yeah. That's the first time where I saw them really highlight that, but. Flies have always been associated with Dracula, like far back. You can even see it in the Bram Stoker's thing where Renfro tells him that the flies and such is, quote, very good and wholesome. That is life, strong life, and gave life to him, is the quote from the book. So he's consuming the flies, the life, right? They're brought on by the vampirism. You can see that from the initial stage of decay. There's a sign that a vampire is coming. I didn't know that. Like, okay. I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Flies. That's pretty fascinating. I actually didn't. I didn't know either that the, the life cycle was, was what did you say, two full weeks, two to three weeks. Yeah. I always thought it'd be much shorter than that. Yeah. All right. So that now brings us to the third stage. And that's the putrefication, which happens about four to 10 days after death. And that's when the breakdown of the organs will start releasing fluids into the body cavities, resulting in the buildup of various gases, including hydrogen sulfide, methane, cadaverin, and I'm going to probably butcher this one, putrescine? Yeah, putrescine. As byproduct. Okay. All right. So not too bad. No, no, you got it. (laughs) The gases will inflate the body and begin to push the fluids outwards. And this is also when maggots go on the move and continue to break down body tissues and other bugs and, and predators will be uh, signaled to come aid the, decompo- uh, the decomposition process by feeding on the juicy maggots. So this is why the vampire would appear to be bleeding from the face and the scream post-stabbing. It would be the result of the gases that are being released from the windpipes. And after death and dehydration, it causes the skin and other soft tissues to shrink. So that makes it look like the nails and the teeth and the hair are still growing even after death. Uh, but now actually, oh, actuality, same length. Same, same length. length. Yeah, they never changed. It's just the skin around it did. So it looked like it was an optical illusion. Now, I, I wonder if, uh, if that's kind of where the, uh, the idea of fangs came into it. As the gums pulled away from the canines, making yeah, it look that like would they're elongating. Elongated them. We're mm-hmm. going to see a more predominant use of fangs a little farther down Later the line, on. though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but this this is the the seeds they're being they're being planted. Planting. The planted this is the seeds. Then you hit you hit stage four, which is black putrefaction, ten to twenty days after death. The corpse collapses at this stage, leaving the flesh nice and creamy. Yeah. It's creamy. Mm. Creamy. I was, what's the old Greg? Is that spreadable? A, spreadable. Huh? What? <laughs> spreadable. On toast. <laughs> so anything that hadn't jellied and dissipated at this point, you right, that was exposed to the air would become blackened. And this is when the body would smell the worst. That's my favorite stage. Oh, yeah. And there are several generations of mug of mugs that would be uh, uh, maggots and bugs set at the same time. Um, it's a good combination. Uh, right? And they would help break that body back down into the soil. So then we have fudiric fermentation. And that happens about 20 to 50 days after death. And that's when the body's finally starting to dry out. And the remaining flesh will be gone. 
Uh, a buildup of the acids in the remains would attract new organisms to the body, such as uh, peristoids and beetles. And then you hit the last stage that most of us are familiar with. Like this, this is one it's, and it's called dry decay. And this happens 50 days up into a year post-mortem. Uh, eventually the hair will disappear and you're just got the bones. Okay. Fun fact for you though, the hair takes the longest to decompose. That, that just wants to hang out. Just wants to hang out. I think it's interesting that that's the case because I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're a, a morbid enthusiast as myself, but you can see like these um, like Victorian hair art, you know, where they would take their hair and make all these necklaces and they survive to this day. You could dig up a corpse that is past the dry decay stage and there'd still be clumps of hair like chilling around the, the, the skull. That's crazy. And I, I wonder, you know, if you could unwrap some of the Egyptian mummies, you know, would you still see some of the, the hair particles in oh, there? It's there. You know, how is it? Oh, yeah. it's there. And teeth. That's cool. That's yeah, they cool. have dental oh, I knew the, I knew the teeth. I knew the teeth would be there. The hair I wasn't so certain about, but that's really neat. Yeah. You get to uh, verify the hairstyles. There's a set of mummies that I would love to get to, which are the um, Asian wet mummies that are actually better preserved than Egyptian mummies. They even have stomach contents in their entirety from, from well, they, those mummies. And, you know, a little, little tangent, because they, they find that in, uh, in Ireland a lot, also the, the bog bodies. Yes. Um, and they recently had one that they found that, if I remember correctly, it's like somewhere from like three to 5,000 years old. So it's, it, they said it's going to be a, a long number of years before they can figure out you know, more about the, the mummy because of the process. But okay, so now I'm taking us on a whole different tangent, but I do want to bring up. So if you remember correctly, last week, I said, you know, let's put a little pin in it. And that's when we were talking about Vlad Sr. and how hated the ruler he was and that he was actually buried alive. Right. And my thought was, is that where the whole idea of the vampire rising from the grave comes from? Because you had Vlad Sr., the father of Dracula buried alive so now you have a live body that's buried down underneath the ground so i i always kind of wonder if that's where that's where it comes into play and you know how how far off is this uh the length of days for his uh decomposition yeah, <laughs> you know, how really, many extra days does it take <laughs> you know what's also interesting is is there is a time period uh around or slightly past uh the vampires where there were little bells um, at the graves. And what they would do was, is they accidentally buried people alive a lot because they didn't have the proper medical uh, diagnostics that we have today. So they're like, coma, you're dead. Bury the person. They'd wake up and then, you know, you see bad bad so i don't know how they figured out that this was going on but they would put a little string into so a, a fun little uh, add-on to that that's where you get the uh, the name of the graveyard shift because they would actually have people volunteer their time and be assigned to sit in the graveyard at night listening for the bells yep so fun all the all the fun facts all the useless knowledge yeah and what's crazy is like there was a lot of um, misinterpretation of the symptoms of vampirism be, 
that we know now because of modern medicine, right? So there were everyday medical issues that they're like, dude, that guy's a fucking vampire. And we know that now, but they didn't know that. Um, My favorite one that exists in a modern or incarnation today is prophyria. Okay. A lot of researchers pointed this out as a possible contributor to the vampire symptoms of somebody becoming a vampire, right? Like after they were bitten, it's a blood disorder and it causes severe blisters on the skin when it's exposed to sunlight. Uh, Symptoms were actually alleviated by ingesting blood too. It was a a old Hmm. cure for it. Uh, Suffering from a uh, deficiency such as anemia can also cause a thirst for blood. Uh, extremely rare meat and things like that because the subject needed extra sources of iron. You know, I I can't remember, but like anytime I got sick as a kid, right. And I, and I would be like, mom, mom, I'm sick. I need something. Right. I'd be like, I want, I really want, I really want a cookie. Right. And, and she, she would give me the cookie even though I was sick. Right. And she goes, and I'd be like, you know, when I got an adult, I was like, mom, I was throwing up for weeks. And then I asked for a cookie and you gave me a cookie. Why did you think that was a good idea? And she's like, Steffi, usually if your body is craving something, it's because you need something out of it. You might have needed the bread or the sugar or something. So when you had a craving, when you were sick, that's why I gave you what you asked for. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's it's the same thing with uh, with pregnancy, pregnancy, and 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 women having the the weird cravings. It's the same thought process. It's something in the food that they're short on, you know. So if they're craving raw meat or salads, spinach, iron, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, it just kind of sucks when you get so to the point of anemic where you're like the meat's not doing it. You're like, just give me the blood, you know. And there are cultures that cooked with the blood. You know, I, I yeah. dated a chef, yep. made a killer blood sausage. It, fantastic. Oh, so oh good. yeah. Now you're so talking my, my language. Oh yeah. 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 That's a great person. That's a, that's a great source of iron right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's going to be strange. You start requesting weird and weird, weirder and weirder things. Um, but fun fact though, you can overdose on iron if you drink too much blood. Um, there's a, a it's called hemochromatosis, uh, and it causes tissue and organ failure in the body because it fails to rid itself of the excess iron. So there is such thing as too much of a good thing. So now, it, it just out of morbid curiosity in your research, to say roughly how much blood you have to ingest, I looked that up because one of my favorite movies of all time is like fight club. And they're like, you could swallow a pint of your own blood before you get sick. <laughs> right. And it yep. seems like that there's no good exact number amount amount that of how much blood would make you sick. Like, you I guess know that makes you- sense. You know, your iron level, you know, everybody's iron level is going to be different. So I guess that would make it difficult to figure out. Yeah. And I mean, if you continually are craving the iron, you're continually putting a lot of that iron in your system, you're drinking the blood, let's say, pig's blood for argument's sake. Okay. You're drinking, drinking, drinking it. And then you come to crave it because your body cannot now find other sources of iron. That's how you're going to cause this poisoning and kill yourself basically. But I mean, anything can be too much of a good thing. It's like, you know, some people can drink a gallon of water and be fine. And other people can literally yeah. overdose on a gallon of water because they, yeah. they're literally drowning themselves in a day. It, I, I wish I had a number for you. I looked for the number. I'm glad you I'm asked me if I looked I'm for the number. I'm disappointed. 
I, I mean, I knew you would have. I knew I, it's one of those things like you asked the question knowing the answer. I looked, I, I looked explicitly when I was writing this too. I'm like, <laughs> how much blood can you drink before you get sick? I tried well, every a, com- combination of words to find the answer. I couldn't find it. It's like, you know, you can drink your own pee two times over before it starts becoming too toxic. So I figured if they know that number, they would have an idea of the blood, but I, I guess not. Yeah, let's go with a gallon. We're just gonna Gallons. we're just gonna have to find some research. We're we're gonna have to do some active research. Or people uh, can find did, it. Yeah. Yeah, you get bonus points in the Macabre Academy. I will I will read your email if you find the answer. You get full credit, guys. Full credit. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you I'll give you two times the amount of points for House Crowley if you go with us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now the question be is is comes in of how did you become a vampire? How did you get that and, way? So they believe that uh, a person becomes a vampire in various ways, uh, including sorcery, committing suicide, a contagion, having a cat jump over a person's corpse. Uh, And some people believe that babies that were born with teeth or on Christmas or between Christmas and Epiphany were more predisposed to become vampires. Uh, And in some cultures, actually, being a ginger. Being a ginger ginger meant that you were, yep, gingers were vampires. I mean, that I, might explain they, my strange attraction. I don't know. I, I thought they were just soul suckers. You're saying they're they're blood suckers too? Apparently, they were blood suckers also in some cultures. I, yeah. I wish I could remember which ones. It was a long time ago. I read that. Ah, oh, I love it though. What sucks is it's like okay, this is how they believe people became a vampire. But the standard you become a vampire is if you're bit by a vampire or if you exchange blood with a vampire. If such is the case, right? You got this chicken and the egg thing. What came first, right? Like the chicken or the egg, you know? So by, by logic, right, there had to be the first vampire, right? There had to be that guy. That was the first one. Somebody had to be the asshole that started it. There's got to be the one guy, the one guy that became the vampire to start. Or gal, or gal. Let's not be sexist here. Y'all could have done it too. Well, I, I know it's a guy because I found the myth. It's a guy. Spoiler alert. But it was because of a woman. Does that help? It does. Yeah. It does. Okay, yeah. great. Y'all, so, y'all got us kicked out of paradise. You got us turned into vampires. Damn. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You sold your soul for us. Sorry. Over and over and over. Over and over. Over and over. So this is this is going to be quite the tale, guys. So hang in there with me for a minute. But I want to I want to share the story because it's it's probably the most my favorite version of ye old first vampire ever. And the answer might be Italian-born adventurer Ambrosio. I want to call him bro so bad. Hey, bro, what's up? Ambrosio, who's that guy? Yeah, just um, go with bro. I mean, we went with Vladdy Daddy, so we might as well just go with bro. Yeah, bro. Okay, so we got bro. We got our bro, okay? And he made the mistake of landing in Greece to have his fortune told by the oracle at Delphi, Okay. Um, I probably should have added more notes on who the Oracle of Delphi is. Do you know who the Oracle of Delphi is? Uh, so the Oracle of Delphi was, um, how was the best way to describe it? Uh, you know, I, a seer. It was one of the Greek seers that she worked with and reported to, if I remember correctly, specifically Apollo, or at the very least he was in, in charge of her. And they would go into trances um, and and be able to, 
interpret the the signs from the gods and talk to the gods and and from across the veil and and be able to give out the advice and and divination to uh, help lead you know armies down to you know bro looking for his uh, his side piece kind of a deal. Yeah, it, it's not this this oracle was so famous. He they heard about it in 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 Italy back in the day. He's like, I got to go see this bitch. This is the person. So of course, as or as as oracles do, the prophesying. Is not hyper specific, specific, but not hyper. Okay, the words from the gods—they don't always come in loud and clear. It's not like a tutorial novel, which would which would make my life so much easier. I was if- just going to say that, and I was just talking to somebody about that today over and a tarot reading of my gods. Wouldn't it be so much easier if they just said what the fuck they meant? Yeah, just spit that shit out, would you? Come on. I I was watching Vikings today too, and their seer was like. It's not for you to know until you can't change it. Then my words will make sense. <laughs> Thanks, asshole. Well, yeah, I know fate. You can't fight fate, so. <laughs> you can't, no. No, but at least you'll know you're there when you get there. That's, that's basically his consolation prize, you know. I'm um, fucked, but at least I'm in the right spot. Yeah, so you know, oh shit, it's coming. So, he, so bro, he only gets a couple of, foreboding words okay the curse the moon the blood will run this is his fortune so he stays the night loses some sleep over it some vague bullshit but while he's on the island he falls in love with Celine, the sister to the oracle of delphi the night before he is to make never it's a trap don't do it dude don't do it just leave that pussy there just leave that mm-hmm. pussy there. It's fine. There'll be other pussy. It'll be okay. No, not for him. No, no. no. Bro's the one and done. Yep. He's going to whisk her off, take her back to Italy, and he's going to marry that bitch. He liked it so much. He's putting a ring on it. That's happening. <laughs> Mr. Apollo, the sun God cursed him in a fit of jealous rage. That's my bitch. Okay. Oracle's my bitch. Her sister's my bitch. Nobody touches my things. You don't play with my toys. Okay. And, it, you know, he he's made it his mission to guard that temple, right? Those are his bitches. Yep. From that day forth, the mere touch of Apollo's sunlight would burn his skin. So how could he get to Selene at sunrise and sail away? He's cursed now. Fuck. I can't go meet her at dawn like we're supposed to. What the fuck am I supposed to do? So in his despair... He may, he just he heads to Hades. He goes straight straight for straight for Hades. Okay, I that would have not been the first god I went to, but that's where he went. Okay, because he's in a cave. He's subterranean. Sun can't get him down there. That's why. Okay, that that part out. makes sense. But you know, it, your first thought is, hey, let's go find his angry, pissed off asshole of an uncle. Yep, that's not going to end well. No, it doesn't. So he made a deal. In exchange for helping break this curse, Hades wants Artemis's silver bow, her famous hunting bow. Okay. Um, and he is given a bow and arrow to aid him in the quest to find Artemis and retrieve the bow. So he, is, he comes up with this great plan. Okay. To warn Selene of the plan, 
in form of a love poem, he goes and kills a swan and uses its blood as ink and left the note at the meeting place under the cover of darkness. Now, the swan is one of Artemis's animals. Mm -hmm. So he's like, if I can show my prowess at taking down one of these fuckers, I'm going to win her over. Um, and there, there was hope there, too. So if he couldn't claim that prize, right, of the bow, maybe he could convince Artemis uh, to talk to her brother Apollo to remove the curse. Like, hey, look, I'm a good hunter. You're a good hunter. You got to help me out. I'm a bro, right? I'm your bro. You got to help me out. The grand plan, leave the slain swan for Artemis each night for 45 nights. So he does this for 44. On the 45th night, misses, misses his shot. He's out of arrows, does not get that last one. Weak. Yeah. And she was paying attention. That's a lot of fucking dead swan. She's like, I got you. I see you. I see you, bro. I see you down there. You're a good hunter. So I'm I'm at least going to come down and talk to you for a minute. So he says, hey, listen, sis, since we're both good hunters, can I borrow your bow for like a second? I need to write Celine one final note, and I need the blood for ink. She could have given him a quill. She doesn't. She goes, okay, here. Here's the, uh, here's the bow. And bro makes a, makes a beeline straight for Hades. <laughs> She's like, oh, fuck that shit. You just, you just double cross me. No, that what dude, I tried to help you. What the fuck? So she puts a curse on him that all silver would burn his skin. So he dropped the bow immediately. He can't touch it. It's fucking silver. Ah, shit dropped. Okay. And then as, as all men in the doghouse do begs for forgiveness. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to deceive you. I'm so sorry. I fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm I know, sorry. I know, but I'm, 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 fucked. I did it for love. I did pretty much. Yeah. I'm cursed. You, you know, Paulo got me. Then he, Hades got me. And I love this bitch, man. I got to marry her. I gotta. Some God, Artemis. Been some amazing pussy. Oh, it had to be. And Artemis, to, to my surprise, ponders this. She considers this. Okay. All right. You did it for love. All right. All right, all right, all right. Let me, let me think about this. I'm going to make you an immortal hunter with the speed and the strength of a god and the fangs of a killer. There's your fangs. Fangs there of a killer. Are. There they are. And then your fangs, you can draw the blood of the beast to write your, your, your love poems. Okay. And he and Selene would escape to Apollo's temple temple and worship only her forever like i'll i'll put jins together but you got to worship me man forever the fucking cliffhanger okay the, the the little little fine print okay artemis is a virgin goddess mm -hmm. if they're both gonna worship her they can't have sex no one's Bro, driving the stake in yep nobody's yep yeah we're not staking anybody <laughs> um so he can't touch Celine. period period and bro's like well something's better than nothing okay so the pair go to a Ephesus Ephesus that's the word they go to Ephesus and they live in a cave and they worship Artemis at her grand temple every night never doing the fuck 
They're never making the love. There's no penetration happening. No boom boom. Nope. And then Celine, as all things do, gets old and begins to die. Well, he's fucked. Hades has his soul and he can't join her in the afterlife, right? He's aging, right? So when he made that deal with Hades to go get the thing, he had to leave his soul as collateral. He doesn't even have that. So they're, they're, they're all sorts of fucked. So Artemis makes one final deal because they were exceptional for years. They did, they did the things. And he told, he was allowed to touch Celine, but once to drink her blood. And in doing so, kill her mortal body. But from then on, her blood mixed with his could create eternal life for whoever drank it. Now, he thinks that this is a shit idea, believe it or not. This is the first time a bro goes, that's a bad deal. And yet he still takes it. Because mm-hmm. his woman told him to. Oh, God. He's like, I'm dying anyway. Do it. So bite me. Just fucking bite me, bro. Let's go. Let's go. So, of course, he drains that shit. Her body goes limp. But out of nowhere, it rises up into the night sky to meet Artemis at the moon. Now, Selene becomes the goddess of moonlight. And every night, she would reach down her rays of light to the earth and finally touch her beloved Ambrosio, as well as all of their air quote children, the newly created vampires, which carried their bloodline. That's the story. I, I honestly, that might be one of my favorite interpretations and, mm. and origin stories. I love and it. And part of it is because, you know, I know a lot of people who work with the Greek gods, you know, so, and when you work with them, you know, you, their energies around quite a bit and we actually have some really nice statues of of artemis and uh apollo uh just works with apollo my wife and so you get you get the feel for it and you totally see it coming before all the little hits get there you know and apollo just being jealous because essentially he was a, a attention needing pretty boy that just thought the the sun shone only for him kind of a deal um and but you know there's there's another touche <laughs> there, but, but it did touche <laughs> but but not in the ways that you know you know like, I I I look at Apollo and I I think like that frat boy that's like Thurston something or other the fourteenth and he just you know gets through life because it's easy because he's pretty and he's rich and all this stuff and and that that's kind of Apollo you know and and he gets so jealous and so angry because. He's not all that great. Um, but there's another, there's an interesting side story to this one also, and, and that is for all of our pagans out there or people that are interested in looking into paganism, be very careful of what gods you work with because they all have their own little uh, side deal that they're going. You know, because oh, yeah. if you look at it, he keeps, bro keeps getting offered all these like, oh, I'll help you, but I'll help you, but, and it never works out for him. Works out great for Selene. Yeah, she she becomes an immortal goddess, right? He is left to wander the 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 world uh, alone and you know, cursed. So yeah, be careful with deals you take. 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've left some significant offerings in my life and most of them have panned out, but yeah, God's asked great sacrifice. You do not mm-hmm. know what you're getting into. And then it's kind of like the gin thing. Sometimes you don't even know what you're asking for until you get it and you go, Oh shit, I shouldn't ask yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. Traveler be warned kind of deal. And what sucks though, about sharing this story and it breaks, breaks my heart a little, just, just a little bit is trying to piece together the validity of this story because I found it on a major vampire site. I love this story. But if you actually go back and separate out some of these stories of Artemis and Selene explicitly, uh, Ambrosio never comes up. And I tried to look at hmm. Ambrosio. Okay. And there wasn't, there was this, this guy who was an explorer, you know, but who explored little parts of this, but where this exact myth came from and and who wrote it and what cultures believed it, you know, I, I don't have the answers, but I put it here knowing that it was plausible given yeah. some of the, the historical research when I went back to fact check it. Cause I did, I didn't, Guys, I went back and looked up each god. I looked up Ambrosio because I wanted to be accurate. There are different uh, stories on how Selene comes into existence as the moon goddess. Um, some of them are completely independent of Artemis. So being able to date this story for historical accuracy, not 100%. But I love the idea of it. It was too beautiful just to just to let it go. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And, and it's it's one of the the origin stories you see that actually makes like complete sense it did it hits it, all the nails on the head it does and the warnings are there the the it's all there if you if you work with deities this is the perfect story as to yep. know what you're fucking asking yep. for before you make a deal you are yeah you're, you're gonna right get what you want but it's not gonna be the way you want it yeah um <laughs> what also sucks about researching vampire lore is the word vampire itself non-existent in um, uh, in ancient times. So we have to consider other superstitions um, of those beings that consumed flesh and blood that we mentioned earlier. Uh, sometimes those activities were attributed to things like demons, spirits, witches, gods, and even the devil. So I have some fun other first vampire ideas to solve this chicken and the egg mystery. All right. Well, first, we're going to go to ancient Egypt, and it's the story of Sekhmet. Uh, Sekhmet was the feline warrior goddess, and she was associated with both plague and healing. And it's considered to be one of the oldest vampire tales. Legend holds that the sun god Ra sent his daughter Sekhmet down to punish humankind for their disobedience. But after Sekhmet couldn't stop drinking the blood amidst her slaughter, Ra quelled her planet drinking thirst by dyeing a bunch of beer red so basically she goes it all down and slept for about three days straight which is now what happens when i drink too much i sleep for days on end welcome to 30s <laughs> late uh anyway so then we go to lilith and there's a lot of lore behind lilith and well, so this one talks episode Oh, she's going to have to because, you know, her and and I'm going to use this to to plug a future episode, um, Baphomet, those two have the absolute worst PR reps in the history of the universe. Okay. Um, So uh, just the the quick one for Lilith, uh, you know, 4,000 year old figure. uh, She was in Jewish folklore. And in some stories, she was Adam's first wife before Eve and had a monstrous rep in ancient Babylon 
for creating the Lilitu, who are night spirits who slip through windows into people's houses looking for victims to take uh, the place of the husbands and wives uh, whom they themselves never had. And of course, they would feed the blood and sustain themselves. Uh, other ones coming to our Abrahamic uh, religions, uh, some say that Judas, the traitor, was paid in silver, and that's why it's such a great weakness to to vampires. And I do believe that's also where the suicide angle came to how you become uh, a vampire, because Judas hanging himself after uh, betraying Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same, same uh, uh, folklore, we have Cain, who was the first murderer. And uh, some say that he was cursed by God to work to walk the earth uh, eternally. Uh, but I think the 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 key here is that all cultures around the world have creatures that are similar to the modern incantation of vampire. And the interesting thing is, is all of these lures pop up roughly around the same time during a period in history where none of these cultures knew the others existed. And we're able to communicate with them. So in my opinion, that lends a little credence to, to something having been out there or still being out there. I could not have said that better myself. I- <laughs> I've been making this argument for years and years and years. Yeah. I get into a fight with a lot of pagans too. When I, I get into that, like the, the independent, but same story thing, which yep. I think the more versions you have, of the same idea under different names from different cultures that exist independently gives it so much more credibility to actually yes. existing in some form yeah. or yeah. have existed. very much so very much so yeah so i love those i call those universal truths or what i look for that universal knowledge it's it's underlying it's like in the dna of human being and it it yep. it, it oh i just oh, I had to, I had to unfortunately throw in one more creature though. One more. Um, and it's closest to my faith and that's the Norse uh, Draugr. And, and they're hard to put in here because they don't explicitly feed on blood, but they do possess immense strength and magical abilities, such as shape shifting, controlling the weather and seeing into the future. Okay, which is something that Dracula does. So this becomes mm-hmm. part of the vampire myth, which we have not seen in some of the other stories too. So this is new incarnations, and you'll see it in Bram's and Bram, Bram's Dracula. You'll see it in that BBC thing that we saw. It's in a lot of the modern ones yep. now. Yep. Oh, weather shape shifting. You know, he turned to fog. Yeah. Yeah. These creatures, however, live in burrows and they greedily guard treasure. Um, and unlike vampires in, in the sense that we were talking about them, um, they are not confined and helpless during the day. And there are some modern vampire myths that, that vampires can go out in the day. They're just not as strong. Um, what's great about them, though, is that they're jealous of the living. So anybody who passes by a Drago's burrow too can be driven mad by its telepathic hate, which connects to that idea of contagion and the transmissible okay. nature of vampirism. Okay. Um, there are things where too, where like Dracula can like read your thoughts and look into Hypnotize you with his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. As we both look creepily into the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and at night, too, they leave and they can turn into that mist that passed through walls. Um, 
They can also uh, torment the living and will slaughter domestic animals or people who get lost in the forest. Uh, if you run away with any of the Draugr's treasure, it will, it will uh, force night to fall and chase after you. And you won't be able to sleep because uh, a, a Draugr with a grudge can enter your dreams. And we do see that again later in vampire lore. Where uh, you know the the uh, they're having all them sexy dreams and dreaming of Dracula mm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you see that as a power ability of the vampire later, and and that's coming out of Norse, who 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 had nothing to do with the with the things. Not even close. Over there. Not even close. But now, okay, so now we've gone all over that, but we have a problem with the issue of immortality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So vampires, they usually don't die because of disease or other normal human afflictions. And they're indeed often said to have faster than normal healing capabilities and various methods for their destruction, most popular being the wooden stake through the heart. Fire, decapitation, exposure to sunlight, garlic, all that good stuff. Um, oh, and actually that was in the next line. <laughs> uh, but they're... I know my stuff. I know a thing or two about stuff that don't normally matter. Yeah, we got my um, script, but he knows the shit. You know how much? There's so much of this is his own information. It's amazing. Uh, but a lot of people don't realize running water was also another repellent. So if if you're being chased and you happen to cross over a stream or a river, couldn't come after you. Um, you know, and then you have the the Christian impl- uh, implements such as crucifixes and holy water. Uh, in some story, vampires can only enter your house if you invite them, and in others, they can be distracted by the scattering of objects such as seeds and grain because they'd be compelled to count them, uh, and that gives you a heads up to to be able to get the get the fuck out of there. Um, but I don't want to give that one a that theory a test. You know, you, you throw some sand at a vampire, and if it doesn't end up counting, you're, you're kind of fucked. Yeah, but I think the fun part is trying to figure out because we're we're analyzing the science vampires, how plausible an immortal person, you know, a person gaining immortality. Mm-hmm. And there's science, there's the science. STEM ladies, I say this on the show a lot. Patrick's here. STEM, do the STEM, the science. Okay. Definitely do the STEM. That's one thing yeah. we push our daughters to all the time. Oh yeah. Always do the science. And in the science, they have a thing called uh, immortalized cells. Uh, there's an article I read that explains it, and I'm going to quote it. It's called "The Aging Process Is Partially Predicted on the Lifespan of." Our, well, let me back up. The quote is: "The aging process is partially predicted on the lifespan of our cells. As long as they continue dividing, we remain young, and the structures in our cells." called telomeres play a part in cellular division. Now, telomeres can be extended through an enzyme. So the secret to a physical form of immortality does lie within our physical chemistry. They just haven't cracked it yet. As long as your cells aren't lazy. Yeah. That's the thing with like cancer. Like we fight cancer every day. You you get cancer Every day. So when they're like, we got the cancer. No, 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 no. Your body learned how to stop fighting cancer and then it reproduces in your system. But you have cancer every day of your goddamn life, whether you smoke or not and do the bad things that I do. You got the cancer, guys. Your body, just the cells stopped 
fighting it. And the research is how do we turn the cancer cells that are the cancer fighting cells back on when they get switched off? That's, that's the key. That's the key right there. It's all in the cells. But uh, I don't have a good, good transition in my next, my next bit because we're running on time. I'm just going <laughs> to. We're just going to dive right in. We're going to dive right into it. So I do, we took all this time to break down the vampirism and the science and the things. But, you know, there's also the evolution of the vampire because we're starting back pre-industrial societies. Well, you don't really get modern forms of vampires until you get uh, to English literature because everything's coming out of news and folklore. That did not enter our consciousness until the spread of certain literary sources. The first one, the very first one, is Robert Southey's 1801 epic poem, Taliba the Destroyer. The protagonist is confronted by his recently deceased wife, who rises from the grave as a vampire. Um, and this is consistent with the European legends of vampires at that time. So you were often related to your, the victims were often related to the vampire that was attacking them. But, you know, everybody was like, Bram Stoker was first. Bram Stoker. Stoker. Yeah, that guy. He was, he was not. Okay. So Lily's poem number one. The first real novelization of the vampire is, is called uh, Carmilla by uh, Sheridan Lefanu in 1872. This story is narrated by a young woman preyed upon by a female vampire named Carmilla, later revealed to be Mircalla, Countess Kerstein. And Carmilla is an amagram of Mircalla. Same thing spelled forward and backward. You know, so, ooh, that's where you get... Dracula and um, Dracula and Alucard. Okay. Okay. Happened here first with Camilla, Carmilla. That Alucard thing, not original. Okay. Came from Anna Green. Strokers just stole everything. They all, yep. Yeah, that's Stroker, man. He just, he just steals the <laughs> shit. And the character is a prototypical example of a lesbian vampire expressing romantic desires towards the protagonist. The novella notably never acknowledges homosexuality as a antagonistic. Thank you. I've read that word six times. (laughs) I know. I'm like, what? Antagonistic trait, leaving it subtle and morally ambiguous. I have provided a, a summary of the story more here for Pat to give us. All right. So the story starts off with the heroine, Laura, reminiscing about her childhood and the nightly visit to her home in in Styria from a a mysterious woman who caused Laura to feel needle-like puncture wounds on her breast. About 12 years later, Laura helps out a beautiful young woman who survived a horrible wagon crash. Her name is, of course, Carmilla. Carmilla appears to be the same woman from Laura's dreams. She also looks very similar to a portrait of the Countess Mercilla Karnstein in Laura's house. And the the painting had been painted in 1698, so a lot of years prior. Uh, Laura and Camilla soon developed a close relationship, but Laura grows weak and exhausted with every passing day. She suffered an attack from a phantom or a cat coming into her room. Her death is prevented 
by the arrival of a close family friend, a general who lost his own daughter to a woman named Milarka. It is soon obvious that Milarka, Mercala, and Carmilla are all the same person. Found in the ruins of an old castle, Carmilla is staked, decapitated, and cremated. Laura's final words. To this hour, the image of Carmilla remains to memory with ambiguous alterations. Sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl, sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church, and often from a revere I have started fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing room door. Oh, but a lot of that sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Just a touch. Just a touch, Lucy. But we'll talk about that one here in a few seconds. Oh yeah. So you got you got you got this story. I provided the synopsis just to to prove a point because I already gave you like a small one, but then we gave you a bigger one. Okay. So what we know comes 26 years later from an epistolary novel, Dracula. That's the one. That's the one that did it all. 1987. Steven Bastard. Yeah. And they're kind of like, yeah, that's Vlad the Impaler. Okay. But he couldn't even translate the dragon right. He got the devil. The devil. The devil. He supposedly went over there, looked at some ruins, did a little bit of research, and then wrote a story. No, 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 no. He ripped a shit ton off this guy. A lot. He's yeah. a plagiarism master. Um, right down to the format of the novel. They are both epistolary. I, I'd like to explain what that novel, what that what that kind of storytelling is. Uh, if you if you would, Pat. So epistolary is a word derived from uh, from Latin, from the Greek word epistol, meaning letter. We see this in books of the New Testament. So the epistolary novel, a story written as a series of letters, journal entries, or other documents. Modern incarn- uh, incarnations use blogs and emails. Uh, it can be much more immersive and realistic storytelling experience. Dear Diary. Pretty much. That's the entire yeah. Dracula book. Uh, my favorite yeah. is the um, the movie with Bill and Ted. What's fucking... The- What's the actor? Keanu Reeves? Yeah, the Reeves. The Reeves. He's like, excellent. Journal. Yeah, most excellent, dude. We're in Transylvania. <laughs> this was early in his acting career. So, I mean, he redeems himself and immensely later. He has the it's same still one of my favorite Keanu Reeves movies ever. My my favorite one is when he plays Buddha. Do I pull his what? Plays Buddha. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, my God. Do I have a treat for you? All right. I have a treat for you. <laughs> if I can get the Patreons together to watch the Buddha movie with Keanu Reeves being the most excellent to each other, I. It's like it's like he does he does the ninety two thing with Winona Ryder, and then he does the Buddha thing. I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but he does the Buddha thing, and then all of a sudden he just like comes out and he is Neo, and it's amazing, and he's an amazing actor. But I know kung fu. Yeah, kung fu. Like, I just watching him be Buddha, the most sacred teacher of of an entire uh, Western movement. With a whoa, man! I just <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm, I have to find that. It is amazing. I had a copy till my bitch mother in law threw all my movies away, but it was amazing. 
It's amazing. Just look up his filmography. Somebody please tell me that they've seen this movie because <laughs> it is fucking fantastic. And it's a very accurate portrayal of Buddha's life, by the way. They did, they did uh, this beautiful, immersive movie, historically accurate, down to a T. It's stunning. And then they have him painted orange. <laughs> it's the really? Worst. Spray on tan you have ever seen in your goddamn life. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. Hollywood in the 90s, man. Just go down Sunset Boulevard, find the worst spray tan uh, uh, joint you can, and boom. Save a few bucks on FX. The wind was bad with the spray tan. He's not even really straight. Like it's not even close. It's so bad. Oh. It's so bad. Let me redirect if I may. <laughs> so Dracula, one of the most famous pieces of of English literature, is a giant ripoff. But you uh. <laughs> It's coming out of Victorian era and a genre of old Gothic tales with larger in life characters. So you have Sherlock, you got Holmes, the Invisible Man, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? And these are a, is 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 an, an amazing form of storytelling in and of itself. You know, they they do some things. Do you know what they do to tell these great stories? What do they do? Oh. Set, so the gothic it. literature <laughs> let's edit that part out <laughs> so the gothic literature combines romance and horror in an attempt to thrill and terrify so possible features in a gothic novel are foreign monsters ghosts curses hidden rooms and witchcraft uh, gothic tales usually take place in locations such as castles monasteries and cemeteries Although the gothic monsters sometimes cross over into the real world, making appearances in such cities as London. Uh, two gothic vampire stories actually predate Bram, Lord Byron's The Gior and John Polidori's The Vampire or Vampire. Oh, yeah. So let's pretend that uh, our Mr. Stroker here didn't rip everything off, okay? Uh, London lost their shit. They were charmed by his unique treatment of the vampire myth. Okay. And it is called the best vampire story ever written and considered incredibly terrifying to the Victorian man. Okay. Um, there's a point I was going to make. Me. While you think on that, so I, I will say this: while it may have been a ripoff, I have to agree. It, it's one of my favorite vampire stories. It was a great novel, good movie. You can't argue it. Yeah, well, Britain, Britain, London. Okay, that's it. They're the key to all of the civilized world. Everything mm-hmm. coming in that we know today that get redistributed because they colonized out. They taught everybody English. Yada yada yada. So they set the fucking standard. If they say yep. it is, then it is. That's what it is. That's yep. what it is. But um, the plot, roughly, okay, very rough. So it starts out with solicitor Jonathan Harker taking a business trip to stay in a castle in Transylvania. 
uh, the castle was of the noble Count Dracula. Harker escapes the castle after discovering that Dracula is a vampire, and the Count moves to England and plagues the seaside town of Whitby. And then a small group led by Abraham Van Helsing hunt Dracula and, in the end, kill him. Fun fact. In an unusual publication deal signed six days into its release in May of 1897, Stoker received no royalties for the first thousand novels sold. So Bram also got fucked on the rights in America. In the 1930s, when Universal Studios purchased the rights to make a film version, it was discovered that Stoker had not fully complied with U.S. copyright law, placing the novel into public domain. Bitch fucked up. That's what happens Mm -hmm. when you plagiarize. So the novelist was required to purchase the copyright and register two copies, but he only registered one. And that made very little money on the novel and did not cement his legacy until after his death. Since its publication, Dracula has never been out of print. That is impressive. Ever. Ever. That is extremely impressive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, <laughs> what's, what's interesting about the novel is most people go, story, story, story. But as, a, as, I, was, as I was trying to drive home and, and in my passion and my notes, it didn't quite line up the way I wanted it to. Victorian mindset, Victorian spreading same novel. If you actually reassess the major themes of that novel, you won't look at it quite the same way. And, and this is this is a really big teaching moment right here. Um, because we're all like, great, this is a fantasy horror novel, and this is set the genre, and now there's people walking around and they think that they're vampires. And this is cool as shit. What you don't know is that Dracula's racist. It's a big, fat, fucking racist novel. It is written by, half by a, 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 a gay bigot, basically. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Like My brain's still like, whoa. When I heard about this in college, I was like, whoa. So I'm going to ruin vampires, I think, maybe a little bit. But Dracula Bitch. was a foreigner that invaded English shores. And it's a projection of those Victorian fears about racial pollution. And what was interesting is they had spent all that time as an empire and they, you know, and even when they were in India and they were all over the place, they're colonizing the world. And again, when you grow too big, you get yourself spread too thin. Okay. And at the time of the publication, there was a mounting anxiety over the decline of the British empire at that time and the rise of other world powers, um, a growing air quote, domestic unease over the morality of imperial colonization, i.e. fear of the civilized world being invaded by primitives. Okay. What Dracula does to a human body is not horrifying because he kills them. It's because he transforms them into a racial other. Uh... It's an other. This alien intruder has invaded the country to disrupt domestic order and render the host race debilitated in a way. They're, they are now weaker. They're changing. They cease to be the humans at that point. And a number of scholars have indicated that Dracula's version of the myth um, participates in anti-Semitic stereotyping. Um, between 1881 and 1900, there were a number of Jews living in England 
they had increased sixfold because of genocide and anti-Semitic laws in, in Europe, pre-Hitler. Okay, these guys have been fucked for a very long time. I hate to say it. Very long time. Mm-hmm. Jack Halberstam, which is a tenured professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature and Institute for Research on Women, Gender, Sexuality at Columbia University. It's a long thing, but this guy's got creds. Okay, he's got that, me. That is a hell of a cred credential titles. Yeah, I had to add it because I didn't want you guys to think I pulled this out of my ass. <laughs> compiled a list of Dracula's association with the anti-Semitic conceptions of Jewish people at this time, including his appearance with the long nails, the wealth, parasitic bloodlust, and a lack of allegiance to any one country. So then are are we to assume that in Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula was Jewish? Is that, is that what the implication is? Right. Or is it just that, or is it just that he represented he the, represented a racial okay. stereotype in its gotcha. physicality okay. form. So like, okay. like, man, like, like people say today, and I hate to say this, please don't think I actually say this, but right. Cause I'm not usually fucking PC. I hate PC, but they're like, man, I got Jude, which means you got screwed over and they got, they got the monies. Right. So there's that, that, that preconceived notion built into Dracula standing for that, you know? Um, and, and it wasn't just in his wealth and his, and stuff. It was also in his appearance. Um, there was, uh, uh, other examples of anti-Semitic characters that had the long nails in this, in the stuff, um, such as, uh, uh, Fagan and Charles Dickinson's Oliver Twist, 1838. Mm-hmm. Then you have, uh, Svengali of George, uh, look, there's the Svengali character who was also depicted as anabolistic and thin. He comes out of 1895. And then the Slovaks and the Romani people were also stereotyped heavily at this time. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Count's control over the Romani and the abduction of young children invokes a real folk superstition about these people stealing children when you, when you traveled abroad. Dracula's ability to transform into a wolf is like, likewise related to xenophobic beliefs about the Romani as animalistic, barbaric, primitive. Instead of calling them a fucking ape, they're, they're wolves. And it also em- emphasizes a cultural inferiority. inferiority. Like, it's it's sad. You see, and, and now that makes, you know, it makes you question. So, uh, was this intentional? Was it not? Oh, it was. Uh, you know, was it intentional because that's how he felt about these people? No, or he knows that's what would he, scare or, people. Or was he just, yeah, or was he just using what the the people at the time would would find fearful and you're not lying it kind of (laughs) ruins it a little bit oh yeah it Um, gets better oh great yeah (laughs) yeah all right so we're going to look at the the diseases during the victorian times and middle-class men were expected to live to about 45 and workmen and laborers maybe around half that time shit i'm getting real old then on there on their uh, range. Uh, so children reaching the age of five were lucky due to lack of vaccinations. So it was a common belief that diseases are caused by bad smells that ran rampant in poor districts. The great stink of 1858, the Thames was flowing with undiluted sewage causing parliamentarians to worry since the foul smell itself might kill the MPs in their debate chamber overlooking the river. 
uh, I don't know, killing off some politicians may not always be a terrible thing. Uh, so tuberculosis, cholera, typhoid, scarlet fever, smallpox, diphtheria, and influenza were of the most common actual diseases. Uh, a lot of the symptoms from these ailments were seen in uh, descriptions of victims after a vampire bite. We can also see an alarming rate of syphilis, which spreads from prostitutes to the home for lack of good contraceptives. Uh, people were also dropping dead from a popular green dye made from arsenic. Uh, it was all over the Victorian home from wallpapers, hats, hair remover, and popular pest controls. Oh, yeah. I um, My favorite YouTube channel is called Absolute History, and they have a whole series on the dangers of Victoria era. And these are things that people live with every day. And instead of looking at the science, let's blame the invaders. Let's blame these foreigners for these diseases and the death and the decay that they're existing within every day, right? They're dying Mm. left and right. So it's got to be something to do with all these foreign people. No, no, no. Science is coming from your, (laughs) you're you're not. We didn't have all these problems until they showed up. Yeah. yeah, Because your population exploded. Pretty much. Pretty much. And then there's there's the big elephant in the room, which is the gender and sexuality issues. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be brief because we're 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 in this we're we're balls deep in this episode <laughs> at this point. But it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The novel drives home the idea of a corruption of sacred English womanhood and marital sex. Okay. Evidence. There is evidence. It's suggested. That Bram was LBGTQ plus and began writing his novel one month following the imprisonment of his best buddy, Oscar Wilde. He was imprisoned for the gross indecency of homosexual homosexuality. Um, and there's a metaphor here. There is the author's own fear as a closeted gay man during and after the trial in this unique moment of gay history. Okay. Cause now we're seeing public people being ousted for the gayness that has existed since time has, has begun. Okay. The gay, the gay is, has been here as long as people have been here. Okay. It's not going nowhere. It's not going nowhere, <laughs> but they, they, they tried so hard. Like God will fix it. No, no, no. God's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. God doesn't care who you're fucking. I hate no. to break it to you. No, and they're using Dracula as a symbol for that homosexuality and that it's evil and it sucks. You know, it it breaks down societal confines in an unusual and an illicit way because he can seduce, he can penetrate, and he can drain another male, Hmm. which is not common in literature at that time. No. No, definitely not in the way that uh, I'm sure Bram would have really enjoyed. Uh, But so we also see gender role swap when the character of Jonathan Harker is being bitten and penetrated by three vampire women who are acting as Dracula's proxies. Um, You know, Harker assumes that the traditionally female role of sexual passivity, while the vampire women assume the masculine act or role of acting. Uh, women were expected to submit to their husband's sexual desires, while aggression and depravity was the exclusive domain of Victorian men. Oh, yeah. And which, you know, as a young kid reading this book, that was one of my favorite parts. <laughs> Three gorgeous women want to come on over. All right, let's do it. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Apparently that was the wrong attitude to have. Yeah. It, it was weird. It's like women love the prostitutes and sexually charged women, but that wasn't okay for their wives. You can't, you can't have that. That's not okay. And as we know, you mentioned earlier, we see Lucy and Mina. They also succumb to the vampire curse. And what's interesting is, is that they are a stand-in, uh, what, what's the word? They're a, a physical embodiment of the feminist ideal of the new woman. Like they're a stand-in for this, this, this um, personification of the new woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are independent women during the Victorian era seeking radical change. At this time, women in the United States were lobbying for lobbying. We're lobbying for women's suffrage. That's 1848 up until 1917, right? Um, once bitten, these women become aggressive, wildly erotic, you know, and driven only by their thirst for blood. Now, Van Helsing, standing for the typical male at that time, would see this sexual awakening as a threat. And the defeat of Dracula is the only way to battle for the control of these women's bodies. You, you must control your wife. I mean, I don't know. Sign me up. Sign me up. I'm, I'm sticking with that aspect too. Sign me up. Uh, but so here's a nice little uh, uh, fun connection from literary world to actual world. Uh, and it was thought that Lucy was based off of a woman named Mercy Brown. And this is an incident that happened in Rhode Island in 1892. So Stoker may have learned about it through newspaper articles amidst what was known as the New England Vampire Panic. And the New England Vampire Panic was the reaction to an outbreak of tuberculosis in the 19th century throughout all of Rhode Island, eastern Connecticut, Vermont, and other parts of New England. Uh, Consumption, which is what tuberculosis was also known as, was thought to be caused by the disease consuming the life of the surviving relatives. The bodies were exhumed and internal organs ritually burned to stop the vampire from attacking the local population and to prevent the spread of the disease. Uh, notable cases provoked national attention and comment. Yeah, so Mercy is the best modern case of them exhuming these remains to perform a mass ritual warding against the undead. Documented in in modern modern, and I use that loosely, modern history. Okay, so Brown's family devastated by the consumption. The mother died first, followed by her daughters, Mary Olive. And Mercy herself. So Mercy's fucking dead. Okay. And then their brother Edwin also contracts the illness and he's barely clinging for life. And his friends are like, dude, 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 we know it's the friends of the family. Like, we, we know what's up. Okay. Multiple deaths in one family means that one of yours is coming back and killing you. Right. Cause we've seen that from the very beginning of this episode. Right. Yep. That's the shit. So they convinced the dad, George to give permission to exhume several bodies of his family on March 17th, 1892. So they dig up all the Browns, all of them that are already dead. And Mercy seems to have no decomp, like none. And her blood is still in her heart. Like nothing's breaking down. So they're like, that's it. That's the vampire. She's, she's getting Edwin. Okay. So Mercy's corpse was publicly desecrated to remove her heart and her liver. These were burned and then placed in a tonic used to treat Edwin to stop her undead 
wiles from killing him, right? Big shocker. Didn't work. Didn't work. Not at all. He died two months later. But, you know, and, and this kind of shows you the the mindset of people during, you know, panics like this. Because you don't, in the modern, in our times, our modern, actual modern times, you, you don't see these kind of panics anymore. You know, I'd like to think that we're a little bit more uh, advanced, or at least in, in our thought process. You know, what the hell was this guy thinking? You know, oh, this vampire is coming back and killing your entire family. But it was the third one to die. You know, a little fact right there. It might tell you that this is not the right way to go. Anyway, so after all this and after Dracula was, was written, the game was changed, right? So now we had fangs, and that became one of the strongest characteristics of the vampires, uh, along with the super strength, the healing capabilities, pale skin, and extremely attractive. Uh, they also had the hypnotic powers. They could read minds, seduce their prey, and it began the ability to cast a reflection, or they, they again had an ability to cast a reflection or shadow, and it was made it unpredict, unable to be photographed or filmed. So, you know, I had to explain that away somehow. Yeah, my favorite, my favorite part of Vampire Legend is uh, the legend migrates across Europe. And by the time Dracula, this idea of the Strigoi or the vampire, get to Europe, these creatures must have access to their own native soil. So you see them sleeping in coffins at some point. They do away with the soil. But the oh. soil was key to the invasion of the vampires onto the foreign soil. Like you see them bringing over crates of shit, you know. Um, but I digress. Okay, so Count Dracula, standard vampire, the demon, the monster, until the late 20th century revival of vampire fiction. Okay. Mm. He's eternally a bad guy. And then Anne Rice comes along. She writes a book, Interview with the Vampire, 1976. And the game was changed. Love this book. Love it. Really? Love it. Oh, so I wish I did. I wish I did. Well, she portrays the vampires as brooding creatures capable of motion, of emotion. You know, they got the beauty, the speed, the senses. It's this struggle with their own sense of being who they are, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, you, you, you see them like Louie and the little girl vampire, Claudia, I think that's her name. They didn't ask to be sure. vampires. So you just bit them. Like they didn't ask for it. And now they're struggling with their existence and the idea of God. And that parallels and written with the long history of homosexuality in mind. Okay, because that that is where this evolution comes to a head in the 70s. Okay, because vampires, gays, right? They're struggling with God. The church is still trying to oust them, but they're commonplace now, right? Like people know they're there. It is less under wraps than it has ever been in history, ever, mm. aside from the Greeks, right? They're out and they're they're getting their punishment, right? And and they're they don't belong to God, they don't belong to people, you know, you're gay, don't work here, you know, blah, 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 oh, you're the case. Okay, so they're living among humanity, but having a separate and distinct culture. Now, they're they're romanticized, they're erotic, but they're also sympathized beings, and they're showing this sexual freedom that's developing at that time, and not that repression 
that the Victorians seem so dangerous and inhuman about being about being the gay. And they're 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 they didn't become vampires by choice. And they're 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 longing for a life just like anybody else. Like they're trying to build this family, right? And they're trying to function and and not get caught throughout the whole thing. Oh. And 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 even Louis struggles with the sheer thought of murder. I'm sure if he could have been uh, you know, he fed on rats forever because he didn't want to kill I, a I person. Was say, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're like, I don't want to hurt anybody. I just want to live my life. Is there a way to live my life and not hurt anybody? And this is the first time you're seeing this happen to something that was demonized for eons. Like the gays, like the gays. And I can say that because I was demonized as a gay in college. These girls were awful to me. I mean, they, I, dude, some of the gays now, man, like the kids, they'll be like, oh, I got bullied online. I'm like, that's great because I had a girl fucking beat on my door at 3 I'm just to open up and cover a piss blanket over me because she didn't want me to fuck her like she peed her bed because she was so drunk pounded on my door at three o'clock in the morning and decided she didn't like living across from a girl who had a girlfriend she's like I don't want you fucking look at me in the showers anymore and she drops this pee blanket all over me you know and and they run away laughing and stuff and my the the person on my floor at Pitt in 2000 mind you 2000 was like eh they're they just, you know, they're kids. They're doing the thing. Like they bullied me religiously for being the gay on in, in my dormitory because I had girlfriends. And that's the worst part that's is, just, is I'm that's not, supposed to my mind. I know. And that was 2000. I was in college in 2005. That wasn't that long ago. No, you know, my whole, my whole family disowned me at one point for having girlfriends. Then I came out as gay. Like I get it. Like I get the thing. I can't fix it. Like they thought as soon as I started dating men, I was fixed. Oh, she had the baby. She's fixed. I'm not fixed. I'm not fixed. Traded away. No, I flirted with a girl at your party. She's I'm not her type. That's fine. I respect that. But there was a time when one of those girls on my floor would have sucker punched me for telling me that, that I thought that they were attractive. Do you know what I mean? Like th- this wasn't that long ago. Like you guys don't know how good you have it. When my oldest daughter came out as trans, you know, I, I struggled with it, but we, we got through it because the world paved its way because of all of this shit. And then you, mm-hmm. the seventies the is the marking point of when things changed and Anne Rice publicly sympathized with this. And, and they have become weirdly a champions of the gays is the vampires. There's this great article um, on the glreview.org called vampires are us by Richard, um, Premith, if you if you guys need to find it, it is it is fantastic. It is fantastic, but they're they're now a new mascot of the beloved gay community, and uh, not the destructive, uh, foreign invading legacy that had been laid before them. You know, like you can't catch the gay. It's not like vampirism. It's not <laughs> you can't catch the gay. So I, I got to say, you just kind of gave me a new new appreciation for that book. You know, I. I don't see the the subtext of of those kind of uh, things when I look at uh, literature and and movies and stuff. I always tend to just kind of go with like the the base meaning of it. And now knowing that you know that was kind of the undertone to it, it, it changes the opinion a bit because it's like oh you know it, it clicks, it makes it click a little bit more. So now okay, 
my always thought was like, okay, well, you took vampires, which were freaking badass hunters and killers and ready to bone and have fun. And just like it, the epitome of, of everything that, uh, you know, people would want to do if they, if they didn't, you know, have uh, the moral standings. And it was like, well, they're, they're really just whiny, weak little bitches in this one. Not understanding the, the subtext. Now that puts it in a more perspective. Uh, yeah, and of course, I, w- most I, wouldn't, people- I wanted to be the vampire back in the day. I have a vampire yeah. tattoo on my shoulder. Now I want to be the fucking vampire. I want to drink, fight, and fuck. I want to do the thing, the food, the three Fs, right? The exactly. Three, it just fuck. sounds like so much fun. It is. And you can be a predator. You can be a warrior. You can be embrace your sexuality. You can do the things, but you can do it without sucking the life out of someone and being a demon. It, and that's fair. It's completely fair. So, I mean, my ideas on vampirism have changed as I've grown up. You know, I I was I was seduced by the idea of vampirism, but there there's there's two lenses to look at it. If you look at it historically, there's this amazing evolution that happens, mm-hmm. and then it gets pissed on here in a minute. But this amazing thing uh, happens. We'll get to that one. Yeah, this amazing thing happens where there's a revolution in the idea of what a monster is, and I love that being a Norse pagan because there is no idea of truly evil or truly good. Mm-hmm. Nothing is truly evil that is evil and nothing that is good is truly good. And once you learn that that gray exists, you exist in the world in a completely different way. And no. you still, yeah, that doesn't mean your morals are skewed or you're, you're, you're going to fucking take over a whole country and make them fucking sick or whatever the fuck they're trying to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But not every monster is a fucking monster. Like I'm a monster in somebody's story and I'm a heroine in somebody else's. And once you exactly. realize that, yep. you're like, yep. whoa. And the vampires being a symbolism of that and how cultures can change their ideas and what symbols stand, stand for. Whoa. Exactly. It, it's also worth pointing out real quick that uh, the book also became a very, very successful movie in 1994. Probably one of the best Christian Slater movies of all time. The, uh, most of you are going to think it's a Tom Cruise and uh, Brad Pitt movie, but mm-hmm. Christian Slater was the ultimate hero of that one. I don't know. Bre- Antonio Banderas. <laughs> Oh you know, yeah, I forgot he was in that. The yeah, vampire Armand yeah. is that timeless vampire. There, he's the closest thing to the first and stuff. But she's exploring mm-hmm. these ideas, the first evolution. You know, all these things. That, that, but I'm coming at this a different lens. I'm not a Victorian, right? We grew up with different shit. I mean, you're good. Okay, you got. We're gonna rattle this shit off. Ready? Lost Boys, 1985. Fantastic. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 1992. Changes, however, after the movie, and you get the series 1997. That's Sarah Michelle Geller. She still should have been my wife. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Freddie and I have issues if we ever meet. Yep. I cried actually in 92 when I first saw Dracula. I saw it. The first time I saw the one with Renona Ryder, I fucking cried. I was like, whoa, love can be. It was an amazing movie. Absolutely amazing movie. Yeah, it's so good. And then you get Vampire in Brooklyn. Oh, He's a sexy motherfucker too. He's still a little evil, but fuck. Yeah. There, there's a whole, a whole new separate, look at it. Yep. A whole new take on vampirism right there. That evolves. Yep. Then you get, well, Dracula dead. Well, they ain't come on. That's the shit right there. It you is. You got Dusk from Dawn. You got John Carpenter's vampire. Great movie. But then you get back to Blade 1998. And then Has you it get been this, that long since Blade? Shit. The first Blade. The mm. first Blade 1998. Okay. And then Hell, uh, uh, Angel pops up with their sub-series 1999. Still good. Yep. Okay, Vampire Very much so. Yep. 
Then yep. you get the 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 uh, the the animes. Okay, you get Helsing in Castlevania. Those are starting come come around in in English dubs. Two thousand and one, Queen of the Damned. Two thousand and two, good shit right there. Good shit. Okay, and then and then I'm stopping in Underworld. Two thousand and three. So I'm I'm going to say in this list, probably my least favorite of the two were Queen of the Damned and Underworld. Like those were the two that I'm just like I, I could I could leave it, take it or leave it would be like considered worst vampire movies in in my opinion until we start getting down to the very last one here right that so uh, is- you kind of gave its own bullet point and it really needs to be mocked and made fun of a lot okay so <clears throat> i bring i bring this up with the kids all the time and they like i'm going to get on my soapbox for like half a fucking second okay the vampires symbol in the 70s we got, you know, a quality of love, right? And trying to have a life and being part of the world, even though you have to exist in it in a unique way. I'm with you, 100%. There's adversity comes with that and it builds character and you're never going to exist without it, okay? There is no perfect world. It does not exist. There will be no perfect vampire world where they can exist. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be a perfect world for the gays to exist or any weird kid. Bullying is never going to stop. Okay. You're going to, there's so much more whining and crying over broken shoelaces today. And you need that shit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was told, suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. And you know me now. I was the, I, you don't know the big crybaby that was Steph, the wallflower that didn't say a word to anybody. Right. I played with Barbies all until blah, 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 blah. Right. But all that adversity, all that bullshit, suck it up, rise above, become yep. stronger. Yep. Now you got badass Steffi, right? And anybody who knows me like that, that chick is strong as shit. Woof. Is that a person yep. right there? That was not me. I was I was an abused wallflower when I was a kid, basically. Yep. Never said a word. Adversity built me into something strong and amazing. Okay. So you'd think that the vampire myth would go that way into something strong and amazing that rise above adversity. No, 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 no. Rice is beautiful, beautiful, misunderstood vampires that you now have a new appreciation for. Okay. Pave the way for Stephanie Myers, sparkling vegetarian Cohen family of twilight has now come into existence. 4,000 BC Babylonia through the crusades. Through the deadly Victorian era, through modern wars, right? Through fucking Vietnam to come up with fucking glitter. Well, I, I, let's let's look at it, though. You, you take it all the way back to the ancient Greeks and you have bro who can't go out in the sun. Otherwise, he's going to pretty much burn to death so that he can't get to run away with his woman. And that's where it all comes from. And now instead of burning to death, they get turned into a fucking disco ball. And that, that was when that whole thing, I mean, that lost me from like like the beginning, but it's not even glorious and fabulous. It's not a beautiful drag queen. No, it's a shit show. It is. (laughs) What? Horrible. What, what happened? What, what, what happened? I I mean, the, the fact that, you know, Jess told me, and this was years after that, uh, I don't even know the guy's name, but Sparkles was Cedric Diggory. And I'm like, okay, you just ruined one of my favorite Harry Potter movies. 
You Sorry. ruined it because now all I see is a sparkly, whiny little vegetarian vampire on the screen. And now he's Batman. How the fuck that happens? No. I don't know. <laughs> My world is broken. I wrote this whole episode, but I got to the last bullet point. I was like, what the fuck happened? And that's and that's how we're and that is how we're ending the two-part series. Going from a badass who drove stakes through people's asses and ate uh, uh, bread dripping with their blood to sparkly vampires. No. No. You have a beautiful symbol of immortality, unlasting love, undying uh, uh, strength and, and youth and, and amazingness to fucking glitter. How? how? Yeah. You had yeah. everything laid out for you. You had no, there was no way not to succeed, even through your adversity. You had every way to succeed, vampire, and become something glorious. And this is and what she we chose did with glitter. It. This is what we did with it. This is what we embraced as a culture: glitter. And they don't even know why. They don't even know why they have the right to be glittery. That's even the worst part. <laughs> they don't even know. They don't even know. They're rising from anti-Semitism and shit. And you're just, you're going to be glitter and you're not even going to do anything good with it. You're just going to fall in love and make war with the wolves and shit and produce vampire babies. You got some sort of vampire messiah now. What is that? That's about it. That's about it. Oh, my heart. I wish I had I mean, a uh, glorious end. It does not befit the tale that has been laid before you. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, but let's face it. That entire series of, of movies is all just. Uh, one big ploy to get the uh, uh, wolf boy to take his shirt off every five seconds. See, now, now at least you're contemplating that. We, no, we'll I'm distract not. you from glitter. Oh, okay. I was I'm hoping not. we distracted you from glitter a little bit. No, he doesn't even have hair. He's like smooth. Which was weird. I mean, he's supposed to be this werewolf, right? And that's but why he has the long hair in the vein and, and like the long flowing locks in the mane. And you're a muscular 12 year old baby. <laughs> Give me some man hair. They were I like 12. Some- I want if I'm with a man, I want man hair. Give me, give me, give me some some hairy chest. What? What? Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, okay. there you go. Made up for it. All right. I have no, I have no good resolution for this. My- <sighs> Modern society fucks up everything. I wish I had let's, something. Let's let's use that as the resolution. Yeah, and now there's just like this <laughs> like culture that exists now that I am so much apart from. Like, I don't even take selfies that much anymore. You know, like, there's this glorification of draining the life out of somebody so you can prolong your own beauty and and blah, 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 blah. Like, there's this extraordinary amount of hedonism, and it doesn't matter who you crush to build yourself up along the way as long as you're some glittery, gorgeous vampire. No, you didn't even struggle with that shit. You were just struggling on whether to, to mate with a vampire or a wolf. You didn't even yep. struggle with your own more. You yep. didn't even struggle with your own morality, or God, or anything. Any of the thing that any normal human being struggles with. Nope, nope. Just your own vanity. Yep. Dumb Who do you want to bang? That's what that whole thing came down to. I mean, at least she had a right to bang whoever she wanted, but that's uh, well. I mean, mm-hmm. <sighs> all right. So maybe non-offensive dare. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe we just we just stop. Maybe we just go with, we'll go straight to it. Okay, witches, it's time for your weekly non-offensive dare. It's kind of like extra credit here at the Macabre Academy. 
to mark my 100-episode commitment to my producer and sister, Sound Maiden, I have come up with 100 safe dares to bring silliness and random acts of kindness into this fucked-up world. We'd love to see our listeners creatively complete these dares on Facebook, The Macabre Academy Podcast. Also on Twitter, at The Macabre Academy. On Instagram, The Macabre Academy. And on TikTok, The underscore Macabre underscore Academy. Do something extraordinary and I might just send you something special. Okay. Shit. Page one, two, or three. Uh, let's go with two. We did three last time. Okay. Top, middle, bottom. Top. Pick one out of five. Three. Okay. Your non-offensive dare this week, ironically, is to rescue a bug. Rescue a bug. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fun fact. Terrified of most bugs. I don't like the centipedes. I hate the spiders. I hate Fuck them. the spiders. Fuck the spiders. Um, but, but, um, the, you can't blame the bug for doing the buggy thing. So how about instead of getting the roll of newspaper and squashing it, let's just scoop it up in a cup, release it back into the wilds of the things. Fun story for you. Fun story time. Did I tell you about, about the wasp in my cooter? Oh, yeah. This is a good one. In your cooter. Uh, well, pretty damn uh, close. So, uh, before we start that, I'm going I'm to say I have a very similar story. So we'll compare. You tell yours, I'll tell mine. Yes. Okay. So this is this is undying compassion for for small creatures, including bugs. Okay. So this this is what happened. Bakery. It's summer because we know my day job is a cake decorator. Okay. The, you know, pays the bills. Here we are. So there's wooden crates from getting the apples to make like apple pies and things. They go up Mm -hmm. to the orchards, get the apples, bring them back. There's wooden crates. Well, we sit out back and we smoke on said crates. Okay. So I'm pretty sure this is what happened is, is, is wasps like wood Mm -hmm. and, and they like sugar bakeries covered in sugar out back. Okay. I am also covered in sugar. I will go. You've seen me come into the store head to toe frosting, just game on. I can't help it. It's my life now. That's why my skin breaks out. 34, whatever. So I'm literally. I'm a a big guy. I love it. Yeah, I'm rolling and frosting. Mm, Yummy frosting. (laughs) Oh, my body. Yeah. And then my dumb ass goes outside in the middle of summer. Sit on crate, smoke cigarette. Get off crate, go into bakery. Go to write on cake because the girls in the front of the bakery do not write on cake. They bring them back to the cake decorators to write on cake. I go to write on the cake and all of a sudden shooting pain through my vagina, shooting ungodly pain. And normally I have stepped on bees. I have whatever. Mm. I, I Normally not terrible pain, but I am surprised. There is a shooting pain <laughs> through my groin and I am confused and I just double over. I grab my crotch and I double over. I cannot figure out what the fuck is going on. And I'm looking on the ground, dry heaving. Now, if I had seen this fucker sting me, I would have been like, oh, that sucks. I wouldn't have been dry heaving. But the sheer terror of pain through my vagina out of nowhere. And I'm heaving and I'm hoeing on the ground. And then I see him, fucking yellow jacket. And he's on the ground. And he's like, oh, oh." I guess my best scientific guess is that he was in the wooden crate, hitched a ride on my leggings Mm -hmm. because they had buttercream on them. I was walking. 
So he had like crawled between my legs because that's where the honey is, I guess. I don't know. It gets all <laughs> he was there. looking for the honey pot. Yep. And when I stopped walking, both my legs squished together because, you know, I'm a, I'm a thick girl, right? I got some curve, not huge, but I got some, got some curve. So they, the thighs, they do the little touchy thing, scares said wasp. Wasp bites me, stings mm. me. And there he is on the ground and his little leg is just going. So he cannot fly. He's fucked and he's not dead. And I felt, I'm like, <sighs> I finally get my shit together, realize it's a wasp sting, and I stop bitching and moaning and crying about being agonizing bee sting in my cooter. And I pick up the poor little thing in a, in a paper towel and I put a cup over him and I just let him sit there for a little while. And everybody's like, why didn't you fucking kill that thing? I was like, I can't blame the wasp. I have a delicious cooter. He just wanted the honey. <laughs> like the wasp was doing what the wasp does. I scared the wasp. The wasp didn't know it was, I, it, it was doing the wasp thing. So the head decorator came in. I was like, can you put the wasp outside? Can you please not kill him? Cause he's not dead. <laughs> and I don't want to kill him. And he's like, he did what to you? And I was like, I can't. And the the cake decorator, the head decorator is also a naturalist. He's real big into mushrooms, bugs, uh, local flora and fauna. Like he's huge. He's like, he's that guy. So he he picked up the wasp and I watched him take out and he put him on the dumpster. So there was at least like sugar and stuff that he could eat until he died his natural death. But I just like, I, I couldn't kill a little fucker. I felt so bad. But I, I rescued the, the bug that stung my lady parts. Then the lady who works with us is from Kosovo and she's like apple cider vinegar. Here you go. And I'm like, yeah, apple cider vinegar. <laughs> it fucking cures everything. It does. But then I had a compress of the bite in my crotchular region smelling like apple cider vinegar all day. It was, it was awesome. You know, instead of that, del- you know what they say smells like trout, eat it out. No, no, no. Apple cider vinegar. Nobody's touching that. Nobody's <laughs> touching that. That took days to go away. Oh, was, I can imagine. Oh, the the bite was gone by the end of the day with the compress. But okay, so very very similar story. Uh, whereas you got it in the front hole, I got it around the back door. So oh, lovely. This is Iraq in probably summer to early fall two thousand four. Okay. I was uh, during my time in the Marines, we were over there for my second tour. Um, and when we were first getting there and setting things up, you know, it, it's just, there was no base or anything for us. They didn't have any uh, uh, bathrooms or anything to go in. So we would make just pop up uh, uh, plywood porta shitters. Right. And they would just slide old uh, 50 gallon oil drums cut in half, slide it underneath the hole in the plywood. You do your business. And then at the end of the day, you take the uh, most junior Marine and have them stir the vat while you burn it. And that was the loveliness of living in the desert. So I'm in the Portageon and I'm sitting there, I'm doing my business. And all of a sudden, right next to the brown eye is the most ungodly pain I've ever felt in my fucking life. Like you, I'm on the ground. I'm dry heaving. It's just terrible. I'm screaming. I'm banging against the wall. People are thinking that there's like a firefight going on because I'm screaming so badly. I'm I'm not. I'm mad enough. I'm going to admit it. I was in a lot of pain and everybody knew it. And I knew exactly what this thing was because I had to reach down there and yank it out. It was stuck in. 
right? And desert wasps are huge. They're huge. It's the worst pain of my life. I, 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 I thank you for your service, but at the same time, <laughs> I know your pain, which is why I'm laughing. Exactly, so exactly. <laughs> and you are the only other person I've ever met that has been stung by a wasp <laughs> in such a sensitive area. And right now, there are countless people watching a podcast laughing their ass off at the fact that we both got stung in very sensitive areas. Fate. It's the fate. It's the fate. It is together. fate. The yep. gods and wasp bites and <laughs> have, have strung these, these, these this terrible, uh, fated podcast together at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it started off so strong and then it just went right to hell. Well, we rode the bus to hell, even though Brandy wasn't here. <laughs> Glitters and wasps. Glitter oh, and wasps. Well, that, that being said, um, we're going to wrap up because I've been rambling a while and poor Sound Maiden has to edit all this. Sorry, Sound Maiden. We love you. Um, but we have a special treat next week. You're not getting a Steffi episode next week. You're getting a Patrick episode. That, that guy that, that's doing the show with me right now, he's going to do it. Now, do you want to surprise him Uh-oh. or do you want to tell him what, what we're doing? Uh, so we're going to go into uh, the story and the, the legend and the lore of uh, Baphomet. Yes. We're going to talk about the horned one and so, also the uh, the satanic panic. Yes. Um, so if you didn't have questions that you want to direct towards the podcast for that episode, because I, I this is a great opportunity for listener questions, email me. The Macaw Academy at gmail.com. We got the Twitters. We got all the things. It's going to play after the episode too with all the handles. So do the things. Reach out to us on the Facebooks or even the Menagerie Pittsburgh, P- the Menagerie PGH. Menagerie PGH. Yeah. On That's the our handle for Facebook, Instagram. Uh, throw in at gmail.com if you wanted to get a hold of us directly in, uh, in uh, email form or just a dot com if you want to come take a look at our website. Yeah, I need I need all the the the, the Baphomet questions. And that's it. We'll we'll see you guys next week. That's all I got for you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Nerdy Witch in partnership with Sound Maiden. We want to thank all of our wonderful Patreons, especially our long-term house witches, Tara and Andrew. For updates, please remember to follow the Macabre Academy on all of our social medias. Please send in your thoughts, stories, and episode corrections to themacabacademy at gmail.com. Remember to like, share, and listen wherever you stream your favorite podcasts.